Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Top 100 Clubhouse, the ultimate podcast for golf course enthusiasts worldwide. I'm your host, James Henderson, and we're about to embark on a journey through lush fairways and breathtaking landscapes, as well as delving deep into the minds of fascinating individuals from every corner of the golfing universe. Get ready to explore the world's top golf courses through the eyes of those who know them best. I recently met with Joshua Pettit, a fascinating guy, an architect with a focus on the work of Dr. McKenzie. He's the founder and curator of the McKenzie Institute, as well as the editor of the McKenzie Reader. We go into what made him fall in love with Alistair McKenzie and also who was Dr. McKenzie. Thank you and enjoy. Hello, Josh. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me, James. Are you enjoying your trip around Scotland? Couldn't be better. Um, I've, I've really lucked out with playing some of the best golf and having some of the best hosts, such as yourself, and, oh, and have gotten the absolute best weather. I've not gotten rained on, not a single drop when I've been playing golf for the last eight days. Well, there you go. So where originally the forecast had called for just nonstop rain for a, a week straight. So I've just absolutely lucked out. And um, where have you played? So I started, um, actually, I was in France for a week and a half. So on my way out of France, not a golf trip, but on my way out of France, I did play Morfontaine, which is a very neat old Tom Morris course outside of Paris. I didn't realize it was old Tom Morris. Excuse me. Uh, Tom Simpson. Tom Simpson. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking we're in East Lothian, so I'm thinking about yeah, yeah, Tom no, Morris connections. Tom Simpson, yeah. 1924. And he did some fantastic work here in the UK, but a lot of stuff in continental Europe too. Um, so I played that and they have 27 holes there. I played the 18 championship and then they have a nine hole course called the, I'm going to butcher this, but it's like the Valeri nine. It's like the Valley and translates from French, which has some of the coolest greens I've ever seen. And I walked that after I played the 18. Um, wish I had played that actually. Um, so then I flew, hopped on a plane, flew to Edinburgh, and then right away drove to St. Andrews and played St. Andrews new, tried for a bit, but kind of failed to get on the old and then said, right, I'm heading northward to up to the Highlands. So went up to the Highlands for a couple of days, played Dornuck and then Brora, and then spent a day. Uh, hunting for the Mackenzie family graveyard way up in the Northwest Highlands, which was a pretty neat experience. Found that and then came down, visited a course called Blair Gallery, which has nine holes of Mackenzie left and then went to uh, the West Coast to play Western Gales, which is one of my absolute favorites. Yeah, snap. Special place. Right. And then... Uh, Came over here to play Mirfield yesterday and then met yourself this morning on the first tee at North Barrick, played North Barrick, and then um, had a great lunch and followed it up with 18 holes on goal and number one with Hickory Clubs. How tough finish was it? Off. How tough was Golan? With the Hickories. 
Um, it was pretty windy, man. Yeah, it was pretty windy. That was definitely the windiest round I've had this whole week, too, because not only have I not had any rain, but I've had hardly any wind at all. It's been... When I played Dornuck, they the members that hosted me said it was the stillest they've ever seen it. Like, you coming up 18 in the set of flags that they have, it looked like the flags weren't even on the poles. They were just completely not moving. What did you think of Dornuck? Um, Dornick was was fabulous. Uh, Dornick was absolutely terrific. Um, I had not previously been there, so it was high, high on my bucket list. And I had very, very high expectations. And it met and or exceeded my expectations, definitely. Right. So people understand who you are. Can we start off with what got you into golf? I know you said you didn't come from a golfing family, but how did you originally get into golf? I originally got into golf by watching golf with my grandfather um, on weekends during major tournaments. And so it was the 1997, really the 97 British Open that I watched. Growing up on the West Coast of the States, we were up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning to watch the final round of the British Open what we refer to as the British open, you guys call the open. And, <laughs> um, and that was just an exciting tournament to watch. And it just really intrigued me and got me interested. And then after that round went down and, uh, dug up my grandfather's old club from the 1950s that were buried in the basement and hit some balls around his apple orchard that he had. And I was kind of hooked like from, from that point on. And then, um, Two years later, really got into it when I joined my high school golf team. I'd played baseball and a lot of other sports growing up, but I gave up baseball in the spring to join the golf team and absolutely just got hooked. And then um, started working at golf courses that summer just so I could continue to play golf because it, you know, where I grew up was not very accessible for juniors, not very affordable. I certainly couldn't afford it. And my, my parents weren't golfers. So I thought, great, you know, I'll work at golf courses. Um, so I did that. And, and that got me into the golf industry starting at age 15. And I've been doing it ever since. So what was the first golf course you worked at? Uh, a little course called Marin Country Club, uh, just north of San Francisco, followed by a course that sadly has closed which is a very sore subject because I, I tried to help save it for the last five years called San Geronimo golf course. That's really where I kind of, that's what I attribute with, with the place that really sort of taught me golf and the golf business. Um, and then followed by a summer when I was 17, I moved down to Pebble beach to work at spyglass with a friend of mine. Um, and then came back and so by the age of 18 and there was a couple other courses by the age of 18, I'd worked at like five golf courses at that point and, and thought, wow, the golf industry is really interesting. I want to do something in the golf space. Didn't quite know what at that point, but I just knew I wanted to continue within the golf industry, which I would say most successful people would tell me would be quite inadvisable to do. <laughs> and those in the <laughs> golf industry would probably know what I mean. But uh, 
but just being in and around golf was just, it was such a, a joy for me. And, um, so yeah, stuck with it all these years. Um, when was the Meadow Club part of that five golf courses? Or? Yeah. So the Meadow Club, by the time I started working at the Meadow Club, I was age 19 and that was probably the, yeah, that would have been the fifth golf course that I worked at. So just so people understand, uh, tell us a bit about the Meadow Club and what's it about. Well, the Meadow Club is a very special place. Um, it was Alistair McKenzie's first course that he designed in America. So he came over in January of 1926 and began construction of the Meadow Club with Robert Hunter was the guy that sort of brought him over and they partnered together and they did a lot of their California work together. Um, and then when I started working there in 2003, they had just begun a McKenzie restoration project, an ongoing thing that was a gradual process to this day ongoing. But the, you know, most of the work was done over a six year stretch. Um, we did about three greens per year over six years we did greens restoration which involved expanding the greens to their original sizes they had shrunken significantly and restoring the bunkers and then at the same time upgrading the infrastructure so the irrigation and the drainage and all that sort of stuff so um i was involved with that and to this day i'm somewhat you know but heavily involved with that for several years oh also i failed to mention significant tree removal project. Um, it was called the Meadow Club because the site was a meadow called the Bon Tempe Meadow, which is at the base of Mount Tamalpais, which is the most significant geographical feature in that area. And there was not a single tree on the property originally. And like so many properties in the States, in the 1950s and 60s, they just started lining the fairways with trees and then you fast forward half a century and those trees are very tall and you've got bowling alleys for your holes. These narrow playing corridors and that it obscured all of the vistas between holes and across the property and looking out to Mount Tamalpais. And so a big component to the restoration project was tree removal. Probably the most controversial component, I would add. Um, walking around with you today, it sounds like you wish you could have 13 clubs and a chainsaw in your golf bag. So <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, out here you don't need it no, because the courses haven't been... We don't have trees. Yeah, exactly, for the most part. Uh, but in the States, yeah, generally, most of the courses I've been affiliated with, working with... Um, I could do well with even say 10 clubs and a chainsaw. <laughs> um, so after that, you went off to uh, university, college. Right. Um, what were you studying? Uh, initially, political science and history, and then changed degrees midway through to pursue landscape architecture. Why not try Eden Mills The Guard Bridge blended malt whiskey or golf gin? Visit our sponsor's site www.edenmill.com for more information. 
Eden Mills St Andrews, bringing the art of distilling back to St Andrews. So between your respect for landscape architecture, you were also a historian. Um, yes. By original. Um, so when you arrived at the Valley, how did you get involved at the Valley? Well, the Valley Club, that's another Alistair McKenzie design course um, just south of Santa Barbara in California. And that was built in 1928 and 29, opened December 30th of 1929. So basically 1930, call it. And um, I had met a few people through the golf industry that were working there and had got word that they were the club had been considering a restoration program for a number of years. Um, and I thought, so backing up, I had to take a year off of school basically to change majors because I didn't plan it out well. And so in order to switch schools and switch degrees, um, it made the most sense for me to take a year off of school. And during that year, I managed to get a job at the Valley Club working on the grounds crew. And uh, began their historical program, researching the history of the course and Mackenzie and Hunter's involvement building that course and put together a program that could be used for a restoration plan, which it eventually was, um, and formalized sort of a restoration master plan that the membership voted on and approved. And then we renovated the greens in 2007. Can I ask you, how old were you when you put this plan together? I was 21 at that point. <laughs> and um, how did you actually get involved with them? Did you, you, you might not want to go into No, it. yeah, no, it's a uh, fair question. It's a great story. I, uh, I, so I'd heard this rumor. I had previously visited them the year before and I had met and become friends with a guy who was their agronomic intern. Now a lot of courses, they, they refer to him as like an assistant in training. But if you're doing like, if you're, trying to become a superintendent, you do an internship program at a, at a high end club. Um, and this lad, um, who is sadly since passed away, was one of my close friends passed away this year. Um, he was working there at the time as an agronomic intern living in a cottage behind the clubhouse at the Valley club in Montecito, right down the road from where um, your favorite Royals live now. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> um, Oprah and a number of celebrities, a very, very posh, beautiful, beautiful community. And um, so the way I got involved was I contacted the assistant superintendent who I'd met and said, hey, do you need any help on your staff? Um, I'll move down here essentially. And, uh, even though I wasn't really planning on it, I was just trying to like force the issue and I'll work on your crew a couple of days a week or whatever I can just to get my foot in the door so that I could maybe start pursuing this McKenzie restoration angle. Well, sure enough, the, the, the intern who had left, who was a good friend of mine, they had an opening and they offered for me to become that intern, even though I wasn't pursuing turf grass science as a educational discipline, I wasn't, you know, trying to become a superintendent of a golf course. They knew that I was intent on pursuing golf course design. 
they thought, oh, this might be a great fit. So they they offered me a gig to work on the grounds crew and to live in the cottage behind the clubhouse, which is one of the most fun experiences of my life. And so I did that, um, moved down there, worked on the crew, and then in my free time in the evenings, began this whole research process and um, just curating all this material and and digging through boxes in the basement of the clubhouse that hadn't been looked at for a long time and put all this stuff together and said, hey, look, we've got a, a pretty good amount of materials that we could use should the club ever want to pursue some sort of a restoration program. And they said, well, that's a great idea. Why don't you kind of formalize it all into a master plan? And I said, okay, uh, I'd love to. <laughs> and so I did that. Um, and and Tom, of course, at this time, Tom Doak was, had been the club's consulting architect. And this was a pretty busy period still in golf development because this was 2005 pre-recession. And so Tom was quite busy uh, building a lot of projects. And um, so I sort of took the lead initially by doing this restoration master plan, which was used for the club to sort of guide the project. And then Tom came in when we actually did the construction and his, at the time, associate Jim Urbina and uh, we all sort of worked in concert to to do this plan. And you were still an intern, or had you well, got at a that job point, there? I had. So I mean, I don't know. I don't really think much of titles. Um, <laughs> they're thrown around like whatever. But at that time, technically, no. I had left during the following year to start my first year in my landscape architecture program on the East Coast in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts of all places. And then the following summer is when we had scheduled to break ground for the project. So I came back for that. So we broke ground in June, right when I had come back from school. And we had another intern at that time now, uh, a guy who's actually one of my really close friends, a Kiwi from New Zealand, who's now a very, very great superintendent down in Mexico. Um, so he was technically the intern and I was basically the project manager. So it's mental to think that at 21, you managed to, without the research Google that provides you nowadays, it was a lot more basic back then, right? You were able to put together a full proposal, went over the membership through just by going through the archives and you'd been part of a, a McKenzie course before um, to be able to, I, I just shocked about how you can do that at that age with so little, to so little knowledge and basis to win over the, all these obviously top professionals. I suppose it was one of those instances of like youth and naivete and thinking you're kind of invincible and can do anything because you don't know any better. So maybe that was part of it. Um, but it built an amazing career for you. You've gone on to to your Mackenzie reader and you've done a few other restorations. What were your other restorations you've done? Uh, well, I've worked, so backing up to Metal Club, when I started working at Metal Club, our architect there for that project is Mike DeVries, who's a great friend, become a mentor to me. Um, and he sort of showed me that there's a path to becoming a golf course architect professionally outside of being 
a former, say, famous tour player with a very marketable name, let's say. And so um, when I got out of school, graduated with my landscape architecture degree, I worked for Mike for several years and helped him with, with a lot of a lot of restoration renovation work, um, including the University of Michigan, which is a McKenzie course in Ann Arbor, um, which we did a restoration master plan for. This has been years ago now, and it's still they've they've done a few things, but they have not done very much of it. I believe now it's sort of uh, being looked at again and considered you know, more seriously at this point. Um, you were but, telling me that on the weekend, it's a car park there. In the fall during football season, if you, if you talk to people in Michigan, you know, University of Michigan football is everything. And they have the stadium, the big house, which I think seats 120,000 or something. Mike could probably correct me. I, th- I think it's about right. But yeah, they park the cars on the golf course. That's what they think of it. Um, this brilliant McKenzie course. <laughs> and uh, um, I can see the disappointment in your eyes. I, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't disappoint me that much, to be honest. It's just, uh, I understand it's, it's purely a practical thing and there's probably considerate ways you could do it. That's just fine. I, I would be really happy though, if they actually, took the plan that Mike and I put together and, and really took it more seriously and implemented it and expanded those greens back to their perimeters and lost a lot of the trees that have accumulated and, you know, fixed a lot of the mowing lines and then rebuilt the bunkers. That would just be the cherry on the top. Um, Do you find when you're doing restoration work on McKenzie stuff, the main thing is green, um, green size enlargement, Bunker rebuilds and tree loss are those the three yeah, things that that's pretty much it. Those those are the the main things. I mean, every every property is a bit different, but generally speaking, those are the those are the main things because you know keep in mind, Mackenzie was building most of his courses, at least in the states. You know, starting in the mid late mid late twenties and then into the early thirties, and so. Once the depression hit in the early 30s, there was really an effort amongst greenkeepers to economize the maintenance operation. And this often meant, okay, well, we're going to shrink this green to half the size and basically make it a circle. And um, oftentimes fill in bunkers and do things so that you could really maintain a golf course with like one or two people. And then World War II hit. And that didn't help. So like in the case of the Valley Club, actually for World War II, they closed half of the golf course and uh, just let it go fallow. And then so after World War II in 1946, they had to restore that half of the golf course, bring it back. So between the Depression and World War II, um, you had this trend of sort of economizing the maintenance operation. And then post-World War II, you had this trend of in the 50s and 60s of planting trees in abundance. Um, And they didn't think much about what species of trees they were planting and the spacing, 
how they were laying them out and they would just plant them in these rows and they didn't quite think about how much it would cost to manage those trees over the lifespan and that they would grow to be these giant monstrosities that 50 years later or more would cost in us dollars you know four or five thousand dollars a tree to cut down um they also didn't think about the fact that god i need to get into tree cutting <laughs> it's tree surgery it's, sounds- out in california it is massive business these days especially with this is sort of a, a another component is that with all the wildfires we'd had for the last few it hasn't been that bad this last year or so but for about five years we've had some pretty bad wildfire seasons and so the electric utility company where i'm at is called pacific gas and electric pg e they have these electrical lines all over the place with trees very close by and so there's been just like probably hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars allocated for tree removal to protect these electrical lines. And so all the tree companies get those contracts. And so if you're a private entity trying to hire a tree contractor, you're competing against essentially subsidized contracts. And so it's just driven the cost up significantly of tree work. And the other thing they weren't thinking about too is from an agronomic component that you, you plant these little trees that oftentimes they would get for free. A lot of times they were donated by local nurseries or they would get them for say 50 cents per tree. Um, but once they grow, they're competing with the turf grass for resources, for water, for nutrients, for sunlight, for air. And so if you're a greenkeeper, an agronomist, <laughs> you're, you're battling these trees that have deeper root zones and so when you're irrigating a fairway let's say or fertilizing a fairway that's subsidizing the tree and these trees would grow faster than normal because they're subsidized by you know these nutrients and irrigation water and then they block the sunlight and the air movement and make it really difficult to grow turf and i don't think anybody in the 1950s and 60s on these golf courses were thinking in those terms at all and so um yeah, I think that's setting aside the strategic implications of taking these interesting holes and just narrowing down, narrowing them down to a very narrow playing corridor, like a bowling alley. Setting all that aside, just purely from a like a economic and an ecological responsibility standpoint, if you're trying to tr- grow turf grass you got to choose one or the other. You can't be growing turf grass with trees right next to it because you're just wasting money and resources. And, um, so I get it. You hate trees. I actually love trees. That's, that's the, the dichotomy here is, is, um, like I absolutely love trees off of golf courses and very, <laughs> very fond. I consider myself a bit of a naturalist in the, say like the John Muir mold. Um, he was born not far away from where we're recording. That's right. Um, Brilliant guy. Yeah. But, um, you know, like the Sequoia Sempervirens, you know, the Redwoods, which right near me actually is a place called Muir Woods named after him. Oh, wow. It's a beautiful redwood forest, old growth redwood. Um, or my other favorite tree is the, the California Coastal Live Oaks, the Quarkus agrifolias, or the Monterey Cypress. Those are, I, I absolutely adore these trees. You obviously do adore trees. You even know the Latin names for them. <laughs> Um, should we 
move on to getting an understanding of who Mackenzie was as a man. Sure. Um, um, because you've written a book, Mackenzie Reader. Well, I didn't write it. Oh, really. no, sorry. You've, I, I edited it. You edited it. I wrote a couple bits about it. You know, yeah, there's like a, but it's it's a it's essentially a a collection of all the things that you've researched and found about Mackenzie, right? Right, uh, some of the stuff, yeah. It's essentially it's a compendium of his lost writings. So he was a pretty prolific writer. Uh, published a book in 1920, a little book called Golf Architecture, and then in the early 30s was writing another book called the. Beard of St. Andrews that was not published. The manuscript was finished, edited, revised. There's three versions of it that I've seen. And it was ready for publication and did not get published. When he died in 1934, it had not been published. Um, and then in 1992, the step-grandson of Alistair McKenzie, he and his wife Joan, who's a close friend of mine now, they found the manuscript and published it posthumously in 1995. Uh, but aside from that, he wrote a lot of articles for all these different golf publications in Australia, a lot in the States, a lot here in the UK. Um, he was just a prolific writer. And so I've collected all of these articles that I've been sourcing for, you know, at that point it had been like 15 years when I was putting this book together, compiled them all together and then um, and then with a lot of those articles were a lot of these great photographs. And then I sort of added in additional photographs and a lot of routing plans of different courses he designed. And so it's this pretty like, you know, there's a lot of rich historical material all compiled together. And then um, in the back of the book is another small section um, where I invited mostly contemporary authors to write short little essays from their perspective. These are other folks that I would classify as McKenzie files. Um, and so like I wrote a bit for that and folks like Mike Clayton in Australia wrote a bit about his time in Australia and Mike DeVries wrote a bit and Bo Links wrote a bit about Shark Park and Jeff Shackelford wrote a bit about McKenzie's time in Southern California and my friend Pedro Casio wrote a bit about his time in South America. Pedro lives in Buenos Aires. And uh, I invited all these folks to just write a little short essay from their perspective about Mackenzie and his time. And it sort of broke down by geographic regions, which was actually sort of, it worked out well. Um, so that's that's the second part of the book in the back. It's all co all compiled together into the, the Mackenzie reader and... Uh, I was fortunate to have uh, Ben Crenshaw write the forward, and um, yeah, it turned out. I think it turned out well. It's fun, fun project. And uh, I'm right in saying that you've got a, a third edition coming out. Yeah. So in in author publisher lingo, this is all stuff that I've learned. I don't know. It's that. referred to as a, a printing, not an edition. So I'm this sorry. is still no, no, no. I'm just <laughs> sorry. Uh, it's just fun. Um, <laughs> it's, still considered, it's still considered the the first first edition third printing okay meaning that it's it hasn't changed i haven't revised it at all yeah, okay. typically an edition implies that you're making some revisions or additions that sort of thing 
So um, I, and I do have plans for a second edition down the road that will be, you know, expanded a bit and add some other things. Um, but this will be the third printing of, of the first edition just because, you know, I, I, I had no idea what the demand would be like. And it was um, quite an expensive production. So I started small and I've just sort of gradually scaled up the production in accordance with the demand. Um, while doing your research for the book, what's the really interesting things that you found out about Mackenzie? Well, I guess, I, so I wasn't doing the research. I didn't set out doing the research specifically to do this book. It was more that I had been doing this research for years and years. And then at some point I thought, all right, I should do something with this material, at least some of it, and try to, you know, present it somewhere. Um, and so then I thought about different concepts for books. Um, so it wasn't like I said, okay, right, I'm going to do a book and let's start doing some research for a book. It was more the other way around. And so the research was really spread out over like, say, 15 years. And so it's kind of hard for me to say, like, you know, there were so many so many things, um, but I could, I could just pick any, any number. So for instance, there's a quite a bit of material in there about Augusta national, but I didn't want to put too much in because of all of Mackenzie's projects. There are three that we have that I have like by far the most amount of material for way more than any other project, like orders of magnitude, more material. And those projects are Augusta national Cypress point and Pasa Tiempo and Augusta would be first on the list. So there's just an abundance of Augusta materials. Um, why is that? Why do you think that happened? Well, I think a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it was probably because he worked with Bobby Jones on that project. So it was, um, well documented. It was well, I would say sort of like well hyped right out of the gate. Yeah. You know, it was pretty well known. It wasn't just like an ordinary development. It was kind of like, wow, Bobby Jones is building a golf course and he's partnered with Alistair McKenzie, the great architect to do this. So right out of the gate, it had a lot of publicity in golf circles. Um, the other component there I would say is that the the land plan we talked about this earlier the land planning group was the Olmsted brothers firm which were the two sons of Frederick Law Olmsted they run their landscape architecture firm at the time out of Brookline Massachusetts and they were extremely organized and diligent with all of their records and so to this day they have a fantastic archive of material for all their projects but specifically for Augusta in this case where they have drawings, like just an immense amount of architectural drawings, correspondence, documents, articles, all of this stuff has been collected in this archive at the Opstead Brothers, which is now run by the National Park Service. Um, that's that's another reason. And so I think, I think you combine those two. And then somewhere along the lines, the... Um, the Library of Congress, which is, I think, the biggest library in the world, they acquired a whole lot of those materials as well, and they're very organized and preserved. 
So I think for all those factors, it was just very well documented and they did, for the most part, a pretty good job of um, collecting all of that stuff. So anyway, so go, going back to the book, um, I had to be careful not to put too much stuff about Augusta in the book because, you know, it, it was had to be more broad about all of Mackenzie's projects in his whole career. But there's a fair amount in there and there will be eventually a, a follow-up book <laughs> uh, hint. But um, so that was one of the really, I guess, throughout this whole process to answer your previous question was going super in depth on the history of the Augusta project from its impetus to, you know, the early parts of it, how it got built, everything from like the investors and the founding members and all this sort of information and just pouring through all that material. I would say that was, um, that was one of the most interesting things for me, uh, because previous to that, I hadn't spent a ton of time focused on Augusta. Um, I thought it had been pretty well covered, but in hindsight, I don't think it really has. I mean, there's been loads of books about Augusta, but none really that, that go into depth about the golf course itself. And, um, and then the other thing too there that was, I would say really interesting to find through this whole process was Mackenzie's plan that he drew for a part of three course at Augusta, an 18 hole part three course with nine double greens inspired by St. Andrews um, that had not been, that did not get built, but to find that plan, that was, that was quite exciting. And um, that was one of the most exciting moments I would say uh, throughout this whole process. And that that's in the book as well. And there's an article in the back of the book that I wrote specifically about that plan. I haven't read. That. I don't know if that answered. That question. did, that did answer. Imagine, Come on, coming across the double green 18-hole par three must have been pretty damn exciting. It was incredibly exciting. Yeah, I mean, for, for us, you know, architecture, history nerds, it was like, you know, I liken it to sort of like an Indiana Jones experience. <laughs> Finding, um, yeah. But, uh, and then seeing it at first, initially when, when I first found it, it was a black and white reproduction of it. But then finding the the actual original color plan and seeing it in person, when I went to actually see it in person, it's housed in this archive. And they let me, you know, spend some time with it, put some gloves on and handled it. And that was that was pretty special. So as a man who's obviously fallen in love with Alistair McKenzie before they understood who Alistair McKenzie was, because you fell in love with his golf cart golf course concepts more than who he was who was the man that was alistair mckenzie what was he like right. as a person uh he was an eccentric i would say he was a renaissance man um he was i would say brilliant and of course i'm kind of biased but um i really think he was and he was one of these unique characters that was um sort of both right brain and left brain so he you know had the sort of scientific mathematical components and then he was also very very artistic and creative and uh, most people have kind of like one or the other more or one more than the other and i think he had a fair bit of both and 
and managed to intertwine those all throughout his life and his career. But he, he grew up the son of a doctor and he became a doctor. He was a physician and then um, went to South Africa for the Boer War and was a surgeon there. And that's when he started observing the Boers who really fought like a guerrilla warfare. And the British weren't really prepared for that. I hadn't really seen it. And he quite admired actually their camouflage techniques. And that's when he started thinking about camouflage, like manipulating the landscape, um, doing all these things to, to hide, you know, troops. And um, he goes very into depth. He wrote actually a wealth of material all about camouflage. And some of that is in the McKenzie reader. So it's, the McKenzie Reader isn't just golf stuff. I mean, it's predominantly golf, but there's other stuff like military stuff. There's some economics in there. Um, there's some medical stuff in there talking about his time as being a doctor. And and that sort of tied into golf because you would sort of prescribe golf as a prescription to people. Say, hey, get out, get some exercise, some fresh air, mental stimulation by trying to navigate around a golf course. Um, but what... What happened was he essentially, after the Boer War, he had came back to England and was practicing as a physician still. And he just couldn't get out of his head these ideas of how he could apply these camouflage techniques, manipulating the landscape to building golf courses. And so he started in 1906, was a founding member of Alwoodley, just outside of Leeds, and said, right, well, I can design this course. <laughs> and the membership thought, well, you've got some really interesting ideas. Why don't we consult with a guy named Harry Colt also? And so Harry Colt came in and kind of, I think, broadly gave his stamp of approval to McKenzie's ideas. And that was his first go at building a golf course. And then right after that, in 1907, Moortown, which is basically right next door to Alwoodley. Yeah, it's across the road almost. Yeah. Um, that was a club that had been organized, and they thought, wow, Alwoodley is very good. We'd like you, Dr. McKenzie, to design our course. The only problem is they didn't have any money to build it. So the solution he came up with was, right, I might get this wrong, but I think they had like 25 pounds or something in 1907. And he said, right, okay, for 25 pounds, I'll build you one hole. And then you could use that hole as sort of a marketing ploy to be able to acquire other investors and founding members to, to raise the capital to build the whole golf course. So he did that. The hole he built was the, the famous par three, the Gibraltar. Um, and they absolutely loved it. And it was considered one of the best inland par threes in England. And then shortly after that, they, they raised all the capital to build the rest of the course. So that at that point, so his one hole was now a template hole. I'm sorry. Gibraltar is a template hole, right? I don't know if you would consider Gibraltar it's a template. Own, it's well, I guess maybe not. Gibraltar was actually sort of basically inspired by the Redan. Yeah. Yeah. But sort of a modified Redan. But did he not argue that it was not the Redan because it kind of, he argued there was nothing to do with Rodan, or am I wrong there? I don't know about that. 
I, I don't know what you're referring to. I've not. Well, I'm, not, I'm probably I'm not wrong then because you'll know more than I do. Um, I'm not. I'm not a Moortown expert. There is a historian there that, but I, I don't know that. I don't know that to be the case one way or the other. Um, but I think it's pretty well considered that it was. It's basically inspired by the Redan. It's modified okay. Redan, and he built a lot of Redans yeah, throughout no, his I career. I mean, he, he was quite fond of of the Redan and, um, and and others like the Eden. He built a lot of Eden greens, a lot of Eden Part Three holes, and um. But that was back in the days where all these designers were all using template holes a lot, like McDonald and um, Ross. And yeah, at McDonald was, I think, kind of just getting going. Um, hadn't really, you know, it was this was before, like, say, National Golf Links, yeah, uh, or Lido or any of those. Um, but he. So, anyways, uh, going back to who who Mackenzie the man was, essentially at at one point, and I don't, I don't know the actual year. It's a great question. It was pre pre World War One, so this probably was like in and around nineteen ten, nineteen eleven. I'm sort of guessing here. He decided to stop practicing as a physician and pursue golf course design full time as a career, and he did that. and And he he had quite a few contracts here in the British Isles and then World War One hit and during World War One he uh, was ran what was called the British School of Camouflage and as you probably know World War One was you know very very tragic in, in a lot of ways but it was like militarily it was a trench you know referred to as trench warfare and they were just digging these trenches and it was just like basically stalemate it was just People dying, people dying, but um, they're digging these trenches, and they were very, very artificial trenches. And Mackenzie's idea was, "Wow, we could really actually build much more, you know, camouflage type trenches and landforms, and employ all of these techniques that he learned observing the Boers." And and then he sort of like expounded on those ideas, and he wrote a ton of material about all of these ideas around camouflage and warfare and um you know he implored people within the british military to sort of like buy into his ideas and i don't think he didn't really have much luck but there's a there's an interesting story in the book where he talks about having the um like the cousin i want to say it was like the cousin of the queen okay come look at his his test mil his test camouflage bunker fields that he built and showing them to and like this is why we need to use this technology this, these techniques in in warfare and that sort of thing never gained much traction but anyways that's what he did during world war one for those years uh during the great war years and then after the great war went back to building golf courses and refurbishing golf courses and um did a lot of that and then 19, as I said earlier, 1926 is when he, you know, set out to come to the States and that's when he sort of started traveling. And then from that point on, from those years, the last eight years of his life, cause he died in early 1934, he basically was a vagabond. You know, he, he was a, I refer to him in the introduction as a, a, a golf expeditionary and he just sort of like 
all over the place from the States, back and forth to England, to Australia, New Zealand, back to the States, down to South America, up and back. You know, he eventually settled down in Santa Cruz, just south of San Francisco at Pasa Tiempo. Um, but for those years, you know, it was mostly traveling. And it's actually really incredible if you look at the his rate of travel around all these places, the time frames, if you look at the timeline and the amount of projects he was able to do in a pretty short time span, it's, it's amazing given the technology, given he was, you know, taking these ships across sea and, and then trains and, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. It's the amount of ground he was able to cover. And, and I think that that's one of the things about McKenzie that, you know, aside from just stylistically how, you know, all these, these features, he would build these very, very elegant bunkers and that kind of stuff that he was known for. But I think he really was influential on spreading golf in a lot of places around the globe that had, you know, some history of golf, but in those days was very rudimentary and he sort of took things to the next level. And I think the best examples of that are, say, Australia. You know, there was golf in Australia before he came, but there was not any good golf. And he had a massive influence on golf development in Australia, which then influences golf more broadly. And I think you can make an argument that I think Mike Clayton would make this argument uh, without putting words in his mouth that that's really influenced generations of golfers that have grown up playing those great sandbelt courses. Um, and, and then also places like, say, South America, where there, was, there had been golf in Argentina previously, but no, no good golf of any kind and sort of put golf on the map there. And so I think that's one of the things that differentiates McKenzie from um, a lot of his other, you know, his peers in, in the field is that most of those other guys were sort of confined into a, a much more narrow geographic range of places where they were doing work. Whereas McKenzie was all over the place, you know, it was the West coast of California, the East coast, the upper Midwest, all over the British Isles, Australia, New Zealand, South America, covered a lot of ground, you know, more than any other architect. I've got a few questions I still want to ask. One question I want to ask you is what defines a McKenzie course versus any other? Why, what's the things you need to look out for? apart from the McKenzie logo that everyone, not logo, but name that everyone wants? Well, that's kind of a difficult question to answer because everyone's now copying him. There's, there's a range, there's a range of factors there and every property was a bit different. I would say, so first and foremost, um, his paramount inspiration was always the old course. I mean, he held the, the old course in the highest of esteem and sought to essentially not copy, but pay homage to the old course with all of his projects. And, and the really, I would say the novel idea there was at that time when he first started getting going, all of the best courses were on, were on Lynx land where mm -hmm. we are. They were in sand dunes, in sandy dunescapes on the coast of the British Isles. That's where all the best courses 
turn of the century in 1900, all the best courses, you could plot them all on a map. They're all in sandy terrain along the, along the coasts. And his, I think, novel idea was, well, because golf was expanding at such a rapid pace in those days. And it become it became to the point where they were building a lot of inland courses. Why can we not replicate a lot of those features on inland heavier soil sites, which is which are harder to work with? But if you can get creative, um, you can do it. And so that's why. So you combine that that idea with we're building really good golf inland, and then with the camouflage techniques that he picked up from the Boers. That's, I think, that the combination of those two ideas ended up where he was taking these. A lot of these properties he worked on, especially early on in his career, were not very interesting pieces of land. You know, relatively flat, not a lot of interesting geogra- ge- <clears throat> geography going on. But um, he would try to manipulate the landscape with, in those days, horses and scrapers and create these landforms that sort of replicated lynx land. Um, that's what he sought out to do. And so starting at Aldley and then Moortown, um, and then peaking uh, with Augusta. And that was always the way that he and Bobby Jones always referred to Augusta was, this is going to be the world's best inland golf course. Because um, obviously... He- he did Cypress Point and everyone considers Cypress as being probably the great golf course of the world right now. In Royal Melbourne. Cypress is currently number one on our list. And, oh, is it? Yeah. And um Since when? This this just this year or no, the last few years. Oh, okay. Um yeah, it's been considered number one on our list for a while. Um it's it's quite good. Um, I bring you know, back to, oh, oh, sorry, on you go. Oh, no, just on, on Cypress Point, um, there's a great article actually in the book. He writes about Cypress Point often. And there's a lot of material in the book relating to Cypress Point. And um, the, the title for the article is something like Cypress Point, almost as good as St. Andrews, but infinitely more spectacular. Yeah, okay. So he was saying yeah. essentially... You know, I'm trying to build a St. Andrews on the coast of California. Uh, and it's probably as good a golf course, but visually much more spectacular. Yeah. That was the gist of it. Yeah, fair. That makes a lot of sense. I bring, right, I always ask this question towards the end of an interview, and it's your five, I've had people say 13, five favorite golf courses. Doesn't have to be the five best, just five favorite. Five favorites. Uh of Mackenzie or just all all courses? All. I'd be interested okay. to know how many Mackenzie are in there. Yeah. All right. I could answer this pretty these have to be in order of one to five or just Nope. Okay. I've I, someone said thirteen, so different courses. Oh, so. okay. So I could just all right. Well, but five that's is the really guide fair. number. Five's five's the guide number. All right. Well, I would say uh the old course certainly. Do I okay, are, are these courses that I have I've had to be at an experience. Yeah, you've experienced. Okay, them. okay. So then Augusta doesn't count because I have not been to Augusta. So of courses that I've experienced, old course for sure. Cypress Point, North Barrack, where we played this morning, is in the list. Uh, then I get down to 
probably Pine Valley and Royal County Down, Valley Bunyan. That's six right there. Well, there you go. Those are those would be mine. And is um, there are your have you got a favorite hole? One hole that you just stood at and went, I want to hit a golf ball at this for the rest of the afternoon. Uh, for me, it would be standing on 15 at Cypress Point and, and either hitting balls or not hitting balls because the shot itself isn't that spectacular. It's more the visual component. You are just absolutely immersed in the most incredible landscape you've probably ever seen. So standing on the 15th tee at Cypress Point would probably be that. I mean, I could sit there for hours and it's just absolutely incredible. Um, if you're talking about actually st- more strategically like playing, hitting golf shots, um, well, there's a lot because there's a lot of like great greens. Um, I could spend hours and hours on the Himalayas green, for instance. Yeah. St. Andrews, which was Mackenzie's favorite green. Um, but for for a golf hole, one that really sticks out to me as like strategically of great, great interest Sorry, going back to the green stuff, um, talking about Mackenzie's green complexes. Obviously, greens are sped up a lot. Do you think that as a restorer of greens for Mackenzie, there's any point where you have to dumb down what the original green would have to be because of the greens speeding up? Oh, well, you're really going to get me some hot water with this question. Okay, right. We can come back. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fair. I'll, I'll answer it. Um, I can be diplomatic. No, uh, well, all right. This gets to be a quite a nuanced conversation, which I'm happy to have. Um, my answer is generally speaking, no, I, I don't think, I, I think that really the solution and believe me, there are several clubs that are, that are at this sort of crossroads trying to figure out what to do in this regard. But I think generally the solution is in the agronomics in the way that the greens are managed. And so what I mean by that, for example, in California, where Mackenzie did a lot of these great courses in the latter stages of his career, um, the greens now, for the most part, have all become poa annua, which is essentially a weed. It's an annual meadow grass. And poa annua is not a good turf grass. That's what the, the Lynx courses try and get rid of it. Yeah, exactly. So... And what happens is when you have poa annua, you have to do a lot to it to keep it good and smooth and consistent. And so what a lot of these clubs do is they spend a fortune and they, you know, they expend a lot of resources and put a lot of inputs into watering, mowing, verticutting, top dressing, aerifying, all of these things to these greens to keep them good. And in the summer and in the growing season, um, you could mow a green, a poa green in the morning and it could be pretty good. And then by the afternoon, it's really bumpy. And when you, like, if you were to say, roll a putt on a green and videotape it, and then you look at it in slow motion, you'll see the ball just wiggling back and forth the whole way down to the hole. And that's just the nature of poa anyway, as a turf grass. It's a broad bladed grass. It doesn't grow consistently. So it grows like the heights of the turf grass grow inconsistently. And so it makes for a very inconsistent plane surface that requires a lot of work to keep it good. Uh, this becomes an economic implication for a lot of clubs, but then there's also many clubs that 
that can afford it. And so it's less economical and it's more of a playability issue. And so what happens is in the growing season, if you're say mowing a green twice a day and rolling it maybe every day or at least a few times a week, by the nature of doing that, you get these really fast greens and they're not necessarily firm either because POA is not a drought tolerant turf grass. It has to be babied with a considerable amount of water. And so you can get these really fast greens that don't play very firm. And I would rather have it the other way around. I'd rather have really firm greens that aren't maybe as fast. And so essentially the simple answer to your question is by growing the finer bladed turf grasses, such as bent grasses, predominantly where I am, or fescues, you can manage the surfaces quite a bit differently to the point where they are, they can play very firm like this table and you don't have to have them rolling super fast. You can have them rolling, let's say 10, 10 and a half on a stimp, which is plenty fast enough for many of the courses around here that we've played and that I've been playing this last week, 10 and a half is plenty fast enough, especially if it's really windy out. You wouldn't even really want much more than that given the contouring of the greens. And so a lot of these McKenzie greens, I would say, fall into that category where if you were able to grow bent grass or fescue, keep them firm, but not that fast, then that allows you to keep the green the, the way that he contoured it originally without having to do what you mentioned, which is like modify them to tone them down, let's say, to account for these fast speeds. But once you have these greens that were built in the late 20s or early 30s and you have them rolling at, say, 12, 12 and a half on a stint meter, then it becomes untenable. And that's when these clubs start thinking, all right, we need to soften these slopes and raise approaches and do all these things to counteract that and to be able to gain more pin locations um, because you start losing pin locations when you increase the speeds that much. So that's kind of a long answer to that question. Um, it's a good but, one though. But, but I guess the the answer is really, I think in almost every case I could show you where McKenzie built a green, you could keep it original if you had an agronomic program that was in line to account for it. Well, that's a very good answer. And I think maybe on that note, we might end it. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Josh. It's been great fun. And I'm thanks sure for the games today. another and time we'll get you back on the pod because that was really interesting. We'd love to. But thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I had a wonderful day with Josh, playing about 50 holes with a collection of both new and old Hickory golf clubs. The podcast could have gone on for hours, so we both decided that we'll find out more about the brilliant Dr. McKenzie further down the line. You can visit the McKenzie Institute on Instagram or alistairmckenzie.org for more information. Excitingly, Top 100 Golf Courses and Top 100 Clubhouse are partnering up with Eden Mill, who are bringing the tradition of distilling back to St Andrews. Next week, we'll be recording live from the Walker Cup, which is being staged at the old course. We'll be sitting down with the panel experts to give you an inside scoop of the historic tournament. So head over to our Top 100 Facebook group to submit questions and stand a chance to win exclusive merchandise. If you have any further queries, you can contact us on Instagram or by emailing me at james at top100golfcourses.com. And remember, play fast, lunch slow. Lunch slow.